Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests. Today we have Jay Martin and Kara Rakowski, and they are here to talk with me about the New York State rent laws that are up for renewal in June. Jay is the Executive Director of the Community Housing Improvement Program, also known as CHIP, and Kara is an attorney from the firm Belkin, Burden, Wenig, and Goldman. Kara, tell us about your practice and the representation of property owners around rent regulation, development of rent-regulated property, rent regulatory due diligence, and affordable housing. Our firm, we are a real estate owner's boutique firm. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary of about 50 attorneys uh, divided into several different uh, departments. I am the co-head of our administrative law department. We represent owners in administrative proceedings at uh, State Division of Housing, DHCR, Human Rights, Federal, State, and City level, ECB, HPD, and Department of Buildings. We also have a litigation department that handles all types of landlord-tenant disputes, residential as well as commercial, disputes between property owners, a transactional department that handles residential and commercial transactions, financing, leasing, and a condo co-op department. And Jay, as of December 2018, you assumed the prestigious position of Executive Director of CHIP. Previous to that, you worked in the New York State Senate. Tell us about that and how you came to work with CHIP. I've always loved politics. I've uh, been in the state Senate for the last 12 years. I started off uh, in various positions and worked my way up, spent the last seven years working uh, as the chief of staff for a New York state senator. And the opportunity came to work and specialize in a very specific field and advocate on behalf of CHIP uh, because CHIP is an organization that represents building owners small building owners specifically. And those building owners are often left out of the discussion about affordability. I thought it was a ripe opportunity, and I was excited about the opportunity to represent and speak for an organization that represents a group that is often left out of the discussion of affordability, and yet a group that is probably the most important group when it comes to speaking about affordability. Thank you both for joining us today on Realty Speak. Bill, thanks so much. Great to be here. Thank you, Bill. So why are we here today? What are we going to chat about, and who are we missing? Jay? The rent laws are up for renewal in June. There are four very important areas that uh, are are vital to this industry. We're we're kind of reaching a precipice uh, where both the advocacy group and the politicians, elected officials and the real estate industry are kind of coming together to negotiate with the renewal of the rent laws. So there are four areas that they they are going to be considering for renewal in June. The four areas that they're going to be considering are vacancy decontrol, uh, the so-called vacancy bonus, preferential rents, and MCIs and IAIs. And I'll go into each individually as we as we discuss them. Yes, Jay, and that's what we're going to share today, the property owner's side of the story about those four major components of the proposals that are on the table for June. But in the meantime, how about that last question? Who are we missing on our show today? Well, we're missing a property owner who would have helped us tell the story. Listeners, Jay, Kara, and myself attempted to invite numerous property owners to join us today, and nobody was up for it. Why? Well, because even if you're doing everything right, no property owner wants to be in the spotlight and risk once again having to deal with a state or city agency in which the burden of proof of compliance is borne by the property owner, along with the expense and time that will be invested to defend oneself. The media portrays New York City landlords as ogres. And while, yes, there are a few bad actors, most landlords are honest business people whose business is providing a great place to live for the people in New York City who rent. Today, you get to hear the property owner's side of the story from Jay and Kara. And for those tenant advocates who are listening, please don't tune out. The best way to validate your strong viewpoint is to allow yourself to listen to the other side of the story. Jay and Kara, I guess it's up to us. Let's get started. So Jay, let's get back to you and talk about what your mission is for CHIP. So CHIP was founded in the 1960s. 
by a group of landlords who wanted to fight back against the narrative that all landlords are bad. It's a narrative that we're continuing to fight. And basically, that's the mission to show that small building owners, of which we are 4,000, and we represent 400,000 units of rent-stabilized apartments, which is roughly half of the available rent-stabilized units in New York City, a little bit below, but almost half of the rent-stabilized units in New York City. So long story short is we are here to show that building owners have a vested interest in making New York more affordable. They have a vested interest in providing a product that allows tenants to stay in their units as long as possible. Uh, Stability is the name of the game for small building owners. The average rent-stabilized unit tenant stays in their building for 20 years or more. That is the model of our small building owners that we represent. We want tenants that are happy, that appreciate the buildings that they're in, that they want to stay in for as long as possible. And that is the goal of of our organization. So we're looking for stability. We're looking to show the tenants and for both the activists and the political uh, influencers on both sides of the aisle that we're working to help solve the affordability crisis in New York from a perspective that we are small building owners that are impacted by their decisions in Albany and City Hall that want to work with tenants and work with elected officials to create an environment that allows for renters to stay in buildings for as long as possible. What's the chronological history of rent regulation in the state of New York? And and again, I want to clarify something. These are state laws that the city chooses to adopt. Is that correct? Yes. The whole realm of rent stabilization, the idea of rent rent regulation as a whole was born out of emergencies. It's been used as a tool of elected officials as a long-term solution to the affordability concern and crisis that's developed over the years in New York City because we have a housing stock that's limited by the scope of geography, the scope of, of financial burdens. So it's become a crutch to kind of influence and supplement affordability. But its initial intent was back going back to the 20s was to help supplement housing stock that was shrinking from soldiers coming back from World War One, going back into the early 20s. So starting there and going into the 40s and the 60s and the 70s, whenever the city faced financial crisis, the rent stabilization model was always brought back and revived as a way to insert affordability into the market. And in other words, to to secure and protect stabilized units that would would allow for tenants to be to have access to affordable housing. The problem with that model using stabilization as a answer to affordability and I know we're hoping to get into that some of the the better solutions to that later on in the in the podcast. But the problem with using that as a model is that you're not really doing anything to expand the affordable units. You're you're just locking in the current units that you have, you're forcing those owners to accommodate that stabilization model, but you're not doing anything really to solve the current housing stock issue. You're dealing with a housing stock that's 70, 80, 90, 100 years old on average uh, it, that needs to constantly be maintained. The margins shrink on a yearly basis with expenses. The bottom line is it's a model that started back in the 20s it is an outdated model for how we can solve affordability going forward. And the current model is unsustainable. We as building owners want to work within the model as best we can to help provide that long-term affordability. But there, there has to be a real serious introspection by elected officials and advocates on both sides to talk about really real serious solutions to the affordability crisis and how we can really help people who need affordable housing. Well, thank you for that. This is incredibly insightful. Just so people understand the difference between rent control and rent stabilization, who wants to take that? I will. Rent control is the original form of rent regulation that expired back in 1969. Subsequently, rent stabilization took over in the early 70s. So when rent control expired, rent stabilization was the subsequent form of rent regulation that is now currently still in place. We do still have rent-controlled units out there, um, and that's by virtue of the tenant uh, who was originally in there since prior to 1971, um, remaining in occupancy continuously since that time, or an immediate family member uh, succeeding to their original tenancy. So 1971, I mean, that's 48 years ago. Correct. So there are people that are still living in rent-controlled apartments from 48 years ago? Yes. Well, how does that happen? 
happens because once you have a rent-controlled apartment in New York City, you don't give it up. Yeah, but I mean, even if I rented that apartment at, you know, 20 or 30 years old, now I'm 70 or 80. I mean, if, if I haven't passed away, haven't I wanted to move? Generally not. And some of these apartments are extremely large apartments. Sometimes we find rent-controlled tenants occupying extremely large apartments by themselves. It's clearly not the best use of housing in New York, especially if there's a need for affordable housing. But if the the original tenant has a family member that could take over the apartment, they succeed. Wait, so there's succession? Yes. So so how does that work? If the prime tenant has a an immediate family member um, who resides with them for at least two years prior to the time that they permanently vacate, then that individual is entitled entitled to a succession rights. All right. So if uh, grandma had a granddaughter and the granddaughter moved in and lived with her for two years and then grandma exited the apartment, the granddaughter could take over the apartment. Yes. The granddaughter would have the burden of proving that she's entitled to succession. And if she does prove that she's entitled, even though she's not an immediate family member, technically, there are ways for grandchildren to become successor tenants. If the granddaughter is able to prove succession and does now have a lease on the apartment, the granddaughter gets it at the amount? Absolutely. The granddaughter steps into so the give me, an, give me an example of an amount. Rent-controlled units range from, could be a couple of hundred dollars a month to a few thousand. It, it really depends on the unit and the history of the apartment. The reason why we see a lot of rent-controlled rents being very low is because in order for owners to increase those rents, owners actually have to file applications with the State Division of Housing to get a biannual increase. And one of the things that they have to do is submit an operating cost statement. The building has to be free of all violations, at least rent impairing violations. It's a lot of paperwork to collect an increase. And and that's why we see very often owners over the years have dropped off and they've forgotten about or failed to file these applications. So it, it suppresses those rents. If an owner was keeping up with their MBR maximum base rent increases each year, then the rents would be higher. But there's so much paperwork involved that most owners do not. And how many successions can happen? In other words, if someone was in there, you know, in 1970, and now a succession took place for a relative, can someone else then who was the relative of that second person also achieve a succession? Yes. So you can have two successions. Um without having a rent increase. The third succession, um, then there would be a rent increase, but it would still be a regulated unit. Do you have any examples in your practice of buildings that have a high percentage of rent-controlled units? Actually, yes. We do have, particularly on the Upper West Side, a number of buildings that have high rates of rent control, higher than the average building, yes. So what would that be? 5%, 10%, 20%? Could be 10%. So basically, 10% of uh, the opportunity for revenue for that building to do things like maintain the building, keep rents reasonable for the market rate tenants is not there because of the loss of revenue from the, those rent-controlled units, which which by now probably shouldn't be occupied anymore. But with two successions in place, this, this could go on for decades and decades. It could. I think that what we look at though, or we should be looking at is not necessarily the effects on the market rate units. When we look at these buildings and we see how many market rate units, how many stabilized, how many rent control, what we really are are seeing is that over the last two decades, since the implementation of high rent uh, luxury deregulation and the ability to deregulate units as they become vacant, that has enabled owners to maintain buildings at a high standard and provide the housing, the quality housing uh, to their tenants, whether they're rent controlled, rent stabilized or market, because those market units, they supplement those rent controlled and rent stabilized rents in that building. 
Jay, with what Kara was just talking about, she mentioned the ability for a owner to deregulate an apartment at a certain level. And I believe for 2019, if the new rent on a vacancy was more than $2,774 and change, I believe that's the amount. Correct. That you could deregulate that apartment and bring it to market rent. And is that one of the things that's at risk? Yes, it's absolutely at risk. In fact, the governor put in his one house budget proposal. The Senate and the Assembly have not brought it up yet. They didn't put it in their budget proposals as we talked today, but the conversation is absolutely out there. And in conversations we've had with elected officials, it's absolutely at risk. And, you know, we're making the conversation, as Kara pointed out, that it's not necessarily a tool that every building owner uses regularly, but it's a tool that they legally have the right to use. And it's a tool they need to have that flexibility so that they can have the financial resources to be able to invest back into their buildings. And it allows them to be able to support the other units that are being stabilized. And I also want to point out that, you know, going back to the prior part of the conversation, you know, when we're talking about rent controlled units, we're talking about 22 to 28,000 units. That seems like a relatively small amount when you're talking about the a city is the, the size of New York City. However, the, the estimation is 58,000 homeless people in the, in the city of New York right now. You're talking about half of the homeless population in New York could, if we figured out a better way to deal with these rent-controlled units, they're essentially locked out of the system when you have this, this fiefdom where they're being passed to generational, there's no means testing, there's no way of, of essentially proving that they can't be taken out of the system. You're basically taking that housing stock and you're locking it away from anyone else being able to access that. And again, even though it's a small amount, we're talking about numbers that could really have an impact on the affordability crisis. If you're not really, if you're really serious about addressing it, we have to address every aspect of it. And that's one area we could address. The means test that you brought up is a crucial part of this because the misconception, and anytime you read an article with tenants advocates um, and, and politicians, and they're all talking about the affordability component of rent regulation, and the fact is, is that there's no, there's no connection. There's no means test. So there's no connection between an individual's income and their ability to occupy a rent-regulated apartment. There's only one part of the Rent Stabilization Code that currently allows owners to connect the income requirement with the potential to deregulate a unit. And that's the high rent luxury deregulation provision for a tenant that is in occupancy where the rent reaches the statutory threshold, which is currently $2,700 and change. It's $2,774.76. Okay. Once the legal regulated rent or the maximum collectible rent reaches that amount, an owner can ask the tenant to verify their income. And then if the tenant doesn't verify their income, they can petition DHCR to verify the income with New York State. So it's a two-pronged test. You need to have the statutory threshold of rent be reached, which is at 277476. Right, and I just want to clarify something. This is for rent stabilized, which is the second aspect of rent regulation. We we talked a little about rent control, and those are the apartments from 1971. But in this case, this is rent stabilization. And I guess, I guess that would work for rent control as well. But in most cases, because rent control departments is so much less than that threshold, we're really talking more about the rent stabilized apartments. Correct. Correct. So once you reach that statutory threshold for deregulation, uh, an owner can petition DHCR to verify the federal adjusted gross household income, which, by the way, is very often a, a very different number than what the the individual actually earns for the two preceding years. And currently, the threshold, for the the income threshold is $200,000 a, a year for the two preceding years. So it's a two-pronged test, but that's th that is the only part of the code that connects um, income to, to the ability to occupy these units. And from what I understand, that's not used very much it's by property owners. It's used when it can be used because since it is a two-prong test, it's not easy to, to meet either the first prong or the second prong. Even if you got the legal rent to the statutory threshold, then the issue is, does the individual 
have a federal adjusted gross, well, not the individual, but the household, federal adjusted gross household income, has it met or exceeded this, the thre- the income threshold? And that's not so easy to prove. So the, the tenants in that apartment that has now exceeded the threshold and they choose to continue to uh, renew their lease and are subject to the limits on increases under the rent regulation laws, are they compelled to share their income? Do they have to show tax returns? I mean, what's what, what are the what are the tenants' rights there? The process is that the owner serves the tenant with an income certification form. The tenant does not have to, at that point, disclose what their income is. They just have to fill out the form, and it's a yes or no checking off the box. At that point, if they check off that the their income has not met or exceeded the threshold, then the owner has the ability to have DHCR verify the income. DHCR then contacts New York State Department of Taxation, and New York State Department of Taxation will only give a yes or no as to whether or not the income met or exceeded the level. And they're looking at the person's tax returns. The state is. So in other words, the owner doesn't know, DHCR doesn't know, they're just saying yes or no, it's over 200 or it's under 200. Correct. Is that the taxable income, the adjusted gross it's income? It's the federal adjusted gross income. Federal adjusted gross income. Which we have found is very often not anywhere near what the the actual income because all the, the deductions have ex- been taken. exactly and in fact i've had cases one of keeps coming to mind many years ago where we had an individual who was renting from a small owner it was a, a it was a townhouse and it was two sisters that owned the building and they had a regulated tenant um in in the building and we knew we had evidence that this individual was a high-profile individual um, who had houses around the world, some of them described in various publications as compounds. We had evidence that one of them was renting for $350,000 for a two-month season. And when we went to verify the income, the income came back under the statutory threshold. And after years of litigation, the tenant had to submit tax returns. But after years of litigation, ultimately, my client lost because the income was all funneled through corporation. And the individual's income did not meet or exceed the federal adjusted gross income for the individual who was the prime tenant um, did not meet or exceed the statutory threshold, even though he was the only officer or officer or member of the entity. Right, they, it was all funneled through the corporation to him, um, but that's that's one case that will always stick in my mind because we just it, it's all based on the federal adjusted gross income, and there are ways, especially with, for someone with means, to be able to play with that number. We've also seen situations where tenants will have all of their income in one year, and to circumvent the system, they make sure that they're the other year. The second year, their income is below the threshold because they need they need it for two consecutive years. So they actually engineer it so that, you know, they skip a year here, they skip a year there. There won't be two consecutive years and they can continue to stay in either a rent controlled or rent stabilized apartment. Correct. Right. Uh, okay. And so that particular apartment, especially if it's a large apartment for one individual who I guess has homes all over the world, doesn't stay there very often, is being uh, taken out of the marketplace for somebody who actually really would benefit from living there. Correct. Yeah, so so that, that law doesn't sound like it's a good solution uh, for affordable housing. It sounds like that takes apartments out of uh, the program for affordable housing in the city of New York. Now, that was the luxury deregulation law. Is that one of the ones that's at risk, Jay? Yes. It doesn't sound to me like it should be eliminated. It sounds to me like it should be overhauled so that landlords have more of an opportunity to deregulate apartments that are being rented by people that, you know, the, the, the rent on that particular apartment might represent 5 or 10 or 15% of their income. And, and there are people that are paying 30, 35, 40, 45, 50% of their income uh, to rent apartments. And, and I think that, that that apartment would be better served helping one of those people have a roof over their head. There's a term, baby with the bathwater. And, and that's basically where we are with all of these proposals, all of these rent renewals that are coming up in June. 
rather than have a honest discussion and negotiation, a conversation with, with building owners, tenants, and elected officials, the narrative coming out of Albany and, and in some cases at a city hall right now is that we have to do away with these programs altogether and, and put in draconian regulations and oversight over building owners. And that's really not helpful to solve the affordability crisis. If that's your mentality and if that's your political ideology, fine. But that's not a serious way to address the affordability crisis. And if you're not having a conversation with building owners and bringing them to the table, the actual owners of the buildings who are supplying the housing, you know, anecdotally, if if we're going to have a conversation with housing as a fundamental human right, and I personally believe it is, I think many building owners believe it is as well. If we're going to have that conversation, I was a child. I grew up with a single a single mother. Uh, we were on food stamps. Food stamps is a political um, football. However, it is funded by government funding. It is subsidized to help people who cannot pay for food. You do not regulate the cost of food, however. So housing, for example, if that is a need, just like food, if we are going to talk about it as a mandatory need, then we have to have serious conversations about subsidizing housing, not conversations about forcing the producers of food, in other words, to lower their costs. The cost of milk, we don't force uh, milk production costs lower. We don't force the cost of an apple lower. But we tell building owners that they cannot charge a certain amount of money for rent despite whatever costs that they're incurring to keep that building a livable working condition for their tenants. That, to me, is fundamentally an unsound, not only economically, but not a very serious conversation if we're going to have about making it affordable for, for New Yorkers. If you want affordable housing, you have to, and if government wants to have an intervention in that process, then you have to actually have a serious conversation about how you're going to provide that. Part of that has to be having a conversation about subsidizing it. That's a great metaphor because what you just demonstrated is that there are programs to help people that are less fortunate be able to afford the basic needs of livability, which is a house over your head, clothing on your back, and food on your table. But what we're doing here is we're asking private business owners to bear that burden of subsidy. And that, I think, is where the disconnect is in thinking that rent regulation, that umbrella over rent control and rent stabilization, is an answer to affordable housing. And I think we're making it very clear among the three of us that that really there has to be a discussion that goes beyond that. Before we get into the other two, we talked about the luxury deregulation. We're going to talk about the uh, vacancy bonus And we're going to talk about the MCIs, which is an acronym for Major Capital Improvements. Carrie, you had something to say? The other thing I wanted to point out is that we do have in place proven means to create affordable housing, quality affordable housing in the city. Um, If you look at the J51 and the 421A programs, um, these are programs that give owners tax incentives to create affordable housing quality affordable housing. And, and it, there's a difference because if you look at many of the government-owned buildings that are now under scrutiny because of lack of services and deplorable conditions, there are private owners that, like you said before, are a bad seed. They're few and far between. Most owners are not uh, that type of owner. There's a proven track record. If you look at how many um, quality affordable units were created over the past couple of years with tax incentives, that's really what the city should be concentrating on. And the tax incentives come from those programs, the J51 and the 421A. Yes. And and what I'd like to point out here is that those developers uh, or building owners, so 421A is new development, correct? Correct. And J51 is ex- a major renovation of an existing building. The owners that sign up for that, they do the math. They underwrite it. They decide that, you know what, based on the subsidies that I'm going to receive, and that goes back to what Jay said, the government subsidies that I'm going to receive, the tax breaks or tax credits or whatever happens in in the particular case of that particular development or building, they've signed up for that. Whereas the rent regulation is not something that these owners signed up for. I mean, it's been around since the 20s, but it keeps changing, and sometimes it changes in favor of the landlord, sometimes it changes in favor of the tenant. 
but no one really signed up for that. They're subject to it whether they like it or not. Let's get into the MCIs, the major capital improvements, the vacancy bonus, and also preferential rents, which we'll talk about a little bit. And Carrie, you wanted to make a point about the fact that we did try to have an owner here to talk about their experience with that. Yes, I reached out to numerous owners to give them the opportunity to join us here today. And unfortunately, although they were all very interested, ultimately they all declined the invitation. And the reason being across the board was because they had fear of retribution. Um, It's a serious concern that they will be targeted if they speak out. Yeah, and that's not a good thing because I think this is something where property owners have to not be afraid to be heard. And there's something to be said for them feeling intimidated enough that they don't want to be heard. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans. We cover so many topics on the show. And with almost 20 episodes, there's plenty of great information and strategies that you can use. But sometimes you may need more than that. Therefore, I'm here to personally help you when you have more questions around buying or holding or selling your valuable apartment building real estate. Every transaction is different, and so are the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on the execution, proper planning, with decades in the industry, in the areas of brokerage, construction, debt capital, and appraisal. I can professionally guide you at any point in the cycle of acquisition, your existing portfolio, or the sale of your multifamily and multifamily mixed-use real estate. Call me. It's just that easy to get the information you need to know when you need to know it. Now, the number, it's 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Jane, Carol, let's get into the MCIs, the preferential rents, and the vacancy bonus. We'll start with MCIs. MCIs is major capital improvements. And basically, it is a tool in which allows rent-stabilized building owners to apply, and it has to be approved through DHCR, to improve their buildings. And it's generally common areas if there's a facade on their building. It can be in some individual units, but generally a common areas got to be backed up by receipts. There's a whole process. They have to apply for these rent increases. The rent increases pay for the improvements of the building. It's a it's an opportunity for the tenant to directly see where the money that they're paying in their rent is going right back into the building and improving the building itself. So both sides of the argument. So where we are in Albany right now is that there is a group of legislators that want to get rid of MCIs altogether. And that's currently being led by Senator Generis and Assemblyman Barnwell. They argue that there are as a small... Well, they wouldn't argue it's small. I would. Group of of landlords who use it and exploit it as a tool to increase the rents on rent-stabilized tenants. I believe they're completely incorrect. There is a conversation to be had about some building owners maybe not properly using the system as it was intended. But the bottom line is New York's housing stock is in the best shape that it's ever been in its history. We're dealing with a housing stock that's 70, 80, 90, 100 years old. These buildings require constant upkeep. If you have a building that is locked into a stabilization model, so it's it's locked into where there's a maximum that rent can be uh, asked for by the building owner. The building owner has margins that he has to hit to be able to afford to keep that building in his hands, his or her hands. If he or she does not have the ability to apply for an MCI to improve their building, and you're going to just take that ability away. The ho- quality of the housing stock is going to go down. Tenants are not going to get safe, affordable housing. The building owners are not going to be able to have the financial means to invest in their property. For the folks that we represent, 4,000 4, folks representing 400,000 units, they're not going to have the financial means to continue to invest in their properties. The quality of the housing stock is going to go down. And what's going to eventually happen is they're going to sell the buildings. And the only people that are going to be able to afford to own and operate and manage buildings in New York City are hedge funds and large private investors. And I can assure you that they are going to have much less interest in keeping and maintaining the property and the uh, integrity and safety of those buildings than many of our building owners who have been in been New Yorkers their entire lives. They've owned these buildings for 20, 30, 40 years. Our, the average building owner in our in our organization owns their building for 40 years. Uh, they They... They live and breathe these buildings. They pass them on to their families. They they want to maintain these buildings. MCI allows them to do that. Taking that away 
will decimate the New York housing stock. Um, I want to also point out a lot of our of our owners actually live in or have family members that live in these buildings, uh, which is also an incentive for them to make sure these buildings are are quality uh, buildings that are upkept properly. The other thing is there's a huge misconception about the MCI process because anyone that would make a statement that owners are using this to circumvent the system and to try to to evade the rent regulation is really, incredible because they obviously do not know what the MCI application process is. It's a very comprehensive process, comprehensive application. There has to be affidavits from the professionals who did the work, the sign-offs from Department of Buildings for a lot of these items. It is typically an 18-month to two-year process to get through DHCR with the tenants and DHCR scrutinize every piece of paper. There is an appeals process if the losing party wants to appeal. There are very strict standards for obtaining an MCI. It's not that it's all of a sudden the owner fills out a piece of paper, submits it to DHCR, and they could raise the rents. In addition, the rent increases are capped at 6% of the tenant's rent at the time the owner submits the application to DHCR. No matter how much the owner ends up spending on an application, and as pointed out before, these are buildings that have been around very, very often for 100 years. The useful life of the mechanical systems in these buildings, they expire. They're not indefinite useful lives. And a lot of these systems go at one time. So if you have a building that's 60 years old, and has had a roof that's been patched as opposed to replaced over the last 60 years, it's time to replace that roof. Well, it may also need an elevator. So an owner can file for multiple applications at the same time, multiple items. However, the tenant is capped at 6%. Their rent, if it's granted, is not going up more than 6% a month. So if you're paying $2,000 a month, that's $120. That's the most it could go up, but it also it's a dollar amount that gets assigned per room. And it's amateurized over 96 months at this point, or there were actually two amateurizations. Okay. Um, so it's not payable at once, but the increase is never more than 6%. And that's of the tenant's rent at the time the application submitted. So if it took two years for the application to be granted, and there's already been a renewal, and maybe there was an increase during that time. It's not the increased rent that's capped. It's the cap at the old rent. According to the HCR, the average the average MCI increase is $40 a month. And, and this is public information. Now, I understand if you're financially burdened, $40 seems like a lot. But it's certainly, you would have to argue, not what we often hear in the media and from the advocates when they say that they're getting three, four, five, eight hundred thousand dollar rent increases. Forty dollars is an average, and it is vital that the building owner able is able to improve these buildings. If we didn't have this option, you'd be having press conferences, you'd be seeing press conferences of people complaining like you see in NYCHA buildings of roofs caving in and mold problems and huge problems with maintenance because the building owners would not have the ability to invest back in these properties. And again, this money is going back into the buildings. It is not going back into the pockets of the building owners. Now, there is another argument that's often made that costs are inflated from the contractor point of view. There's been several instances in the last few months that we've been dealing with as an organization that some of our owners have actually been on the receiving end of bad proposals from contractors. In other words, they were given proposals that were higher than what the tenant claimed the increase should have been. Now, we can have a conversation about improving the system. I'd be paraded around town if I found a way to lower the cost for owners uh, and a way that I can protect them against overly inflated contract pricing. I'm happy to do that. I would love to figure out a way to do that. But the bottom line is that isn't building owners trying to exploit tenants. That's building owners being exploited by contractors. Getting back to contractors, if you take away MCIs, thousands of contractors, thousands of plumbers, thousands of electricians will be out of work. The the, the amount of housing stock, and again, we represent 400,000 units. There's roughly 1.1 million stabilized units. You're talking about millions and millions of dollars in economic activity that goes back into these buildings that would stop, virtually cease to exist. Those are plumbers, electricians drywallers, what have you, who do vital work on these buildings to keep them up, keep it, that would go away if MCI went away. So if there was no incentive, 
for the owner to use the MCI program because it didn't exist anymore, then all of these contracts that you talked about would be out of work. All, all these trades would be out of work. Not just incentive. They wouldn't have the financial means to do so because, again, and they're a rent stabilization model. If you're not somehow subsidizing the ability for a billing owner to pay for the cost of upkeep, you're forcing the economic model of, of money coming in. If you're reducing that amount, it's like a filter. If you prevent the amount of money coming in, which is fine. They've bought into that system. They're, they're managing it. We're not saying, you know, we can have a philosophical conversation about whether or not that works. The conversation is when you're in that system, then you have to give building owners the flexibility to recoup some of the cost of the investment back into their property. And if you're going to take that away, then you're going to stop the improvements on those buildings. And that's an excellent point. I was actually speaking with a contractor last week about this issue. My client was doing an improvement. It was about $150,000. And I and I had an opportunity to speak to the contractor. And I asked him, do you see a change in your business so far? Because because rent regulation is is coming up for renewal. And, and he said, absolutely. He's a small business. Um, he has about 25 employees. It is a family-run business. It was his father's business passed down from his father to this contractor and his brother. He said that this is a $150,000 job. If you take away this job, it hurts me. Just as this is a potential to be taken away, there are other jobs out there that we are not getting. And we're seeing that slowdown. And I can't afford to pay my employees. There are unintended consequences that we really need to look at. It's not just reducing the amount an owner can charge for rent. There are unintended consequences that really need to be examined and how this trickles down and affects. It's 25 families, potentially. It's not one contractor even. You have to look at it as families. It's sort of like the Amazon thing. 25,000 jobs is what I keep hearing in the news. I look at that and and think to myself, it's not just 25,000 jobs. It's 25,000 households that will not have the ability to have a head of a household or whatever, bringing money into that family. I look at it as 25,000 households, and then the subsequent uh, unintended consequences, the trickle down to your mom and pop grocery store in the neighborhood, your movie theater, your pharmacy, housing, whoever whoever would support that group. So I I think we really need to look at that very carefully. Drop the first domino. And the rest fall right behind it. Absolutely. And how many dominoes are there? I mean, I don't even think you can estimate that. Let's now talk a little bit about the vacancy bonus and what that means. And then let's uh, talk a little bit about preferential rents. So currently, um, there is a statutory vacancy increase that owners are permitted to take when a rent-stabilized unit becomes vacated. It's 20% for a two-year lease, and then for a one-year lease, if the tenant chooses a one-year lease, it is the differential between the one-year guideline increase and the 20% vacancy increase. So if the guideline was 1.5%, it would be 18.5%? Right. There's a bill that's been proposed to eliminate the statutory vacancy increase, and which would leave it up to the city guideline board to determine annual increases, it would leave it up to them to determine whether or not a vacancy increase would be warranted for that year, and if so, at what amount. And historically, prior to there being a statutory vacancy increase, it was up to the guideline board to determine, and those vacancy increases were really low, which really put owners at risk in a lot of their buildings because taxes go up, heating oil goes up, all these expenses go up, and owners need to be able to upkeep these buildings with upkeep expenses. And there's one thing that I want to point out here is that in addition to the typical expenses that you would have, which is utilities and maintenance and things like that, because of the regulatory environment that we experience here in the state and city of New York, there's also the cost of dealing with all this compliance and paperwork where people have to hire consultants, they have to hire law firms, and that ha- becomes actually a big part of their budget. Correct. So just going back to this example uh, that you just spoke about, Kara, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a building owner, and my existing tenant who's been in my rent-stabilized apartment, say, for five years, finally with the increases that I'm allowed to take on an annual basis 
or on a two-year basis on renewal, and I get to the point where that tenant, say, is paying $2,800 a month. So now I can go ahead when they move out and take this, say, for instance, we'll use the 20%, I can take this 20% increase. And now you're saying that that's what they're trying to eliminate, the ability to do that? Yes, but I think a better example is if the tenant's paying 2500 a month, right? So they're, so the tenant vacates at 2500 a month or even less. Let's say the tenant vacates at $1,000 a month. That's okay. even a better example. Let's say the tenant vacates at $1,000 a month. Their legal rent's 1000 A new de- tenant coming in chooses a two-year lease. The owner would be entitled to take a 20% increase. Which would bring it to 1200 a Which month. Which would bring it to $1,200. Right. So in the example that I'm talking about, that's where they get to deregulate the exactly. apartment. But in the example you're talking about, it's just the you know the simple formula that's used to help a landlord kind of even catch up to what market rent could be down the road. Right. And, and, that, and that's, the, that's the point. And, and this the- threshold goes up every single year. So as you get closer to it, it gets farther away. Correct. I think it's also important to point out that, you know, the terms we're using here, there's, there's a huge difference between what the legal rent is and the market rent is. And our owners, they're tied into what the market will demand and was available. If they asked for the legal rent, they'd be out of business because nobody would be able to afford their units. They're already accommodating the market and working to make sure that their units are, are feasible to what the market is is asking for. And yes, that does increase as people move into an area, but the legal rent is often higher than what the market will demand anyway. And what building owners are fighting for is just the legal flexibility to be able to recoup the cost of maintenance and to be able to hold on to the buildings. They're not fighting for the, for the ability to jack the rents up to the legal rent. That would be an unsustainable business model. They would be pricing themselves out of the market. And that is what's the common misconception is that, the, again, that there, that there is this, and again, there's bad apples in, in every form of walk of human life. But if you're talking about the difference between legal rent and market rent, if you're saying that building owners are, are doing this out of greed and that a vast majority are constantly looking to jack the rent up to the legal rent, that is unsustainable. They would not be in business. They would be pricing themselves out of the market. They wouldn't be able to hold on. They wouldn't be able to have tenants that would be able to afford their buildings. It's just not It's just not a narrative that makes sense. And in fact, I've had so many clients in the past four or five months say to me that they're concerned because they know that rent regulation is up for renewal. They know that preferential rents and high rent deregulation is on the chopping block. And they know it's in their best interest on renewals or on vacancies now to charge full legal, but the market doesn't bear it. Or the market may bear it, but they have tenants in occupancy who who have been good tenants for a long time. And they know that, you know, to raise the rent that much, it would hurt the tenant. They come to me and say, what should I do? There are a lot of owners that are struggling with that. They don't want to have to do that. They don't want to raise the rent to legal because they know the market, A, doesn't bear it. And they also are concerned about their tenants, but they feel they're being forced to. That's a good segue then to get into the preferential rents. And I guess I just want to clarify something. So preferential rent is a rent that a tenant is actually paying. Is that correct? And I'm, I'm going to expand on that, but is that correct? Yes. Right. So preferential rent is a rent that the tenant is actually paying, and it's not equal to the DHCR legal rent? The legal rent is pursuant to the rent stabilization code, what the owner is legally entitled to charge for the unit. And in some markets, that might be higher than market rent. Correct. But in some markets, that also might be lower than market rent. Correct. And in a market like this, where owners have made improvements to units over the years, and the rents are higher, and since the market is what we call a soft market, there's a lot of inventory out there, owners, in order to give incentives to rent, will offer tenants what is known as a preferential rent under the Rent Stabilization Code. It's an agreed upon lower rent for that lease period. At what point would a property owner change that? and not no longer offer the preferential rent. And let's say in a market where the legal rent was still lower than the market rent, go to legal rent. Yeah. So let's say, let's say the preferential rent is 
$2,000 a month. The legal rent's $2,600 a month. You know, it's a difference of uh, $600 a month. And the person's been there for a long time, uh, but the landlord has rising expenses, needs to raise the rent more than the normal allowable amount based on the rent regulation laws, and they want to go from 2000 to 2400 say. Can they do that? Yes, as, as long as the, um, the lease um, does not specify that the preferential rent was for the life of the tenancy. All right. So the preferential rent could be for the life of the tenancy of that particular individual. But if that individual moved out, then technically the land would be able to go right to that $2,600. Correct. It's important to point out, Bill, that generally that's not the case. Preferential rent is, a, is an important tool for building owners to be flexible. And in often cases to allow tenants who wouldn't normally have access to markets they'd be priced out of to be living in markets they would already be priced out of. It's been made a boogeyman issue. It's been made this issue that preferential rents is, is only this tool for greedy building owners to price folks out of out of buildings, but it's vital. And in many cases, what we hear anecdotal elements from, from our owners that it allows them in cases when tenants have financial hardship, come up mid-term, mid-lease, it allows them the legal flexibility to lower rents for a period of up to six months. For example, anecdotally, around JFK and LaGuardia, we had a lot of tenants who were dealing with the government shutdown that they were offered preferential rents by some of our building owners because they didn't have income coming in. It's an important tool to allow them from flexibility. Yes, it does. It's a door that swings both ways, but the vast majority of our owners use it to entice tenants into a market they wouldn't normally be able to afford. So what's on the table? Removing it altogether or changing it? The governor has proposed an increased illegal rent only on vacancy. And the ability to increase on lease renewal would be eliminated altogether. Both houses back this and more. In fact, the Senate is probably going to back a proposal to to eliminate preferential rents altogether. I hope that uh, everyone is getting a clear understanding, you know, from the landlord's perspective, the property owner's perspective. And uh, that's a lot of information for our listeners. And I, so far, you guys have been great. Uh, what I want to finish up with is is some of our ideas, be them wacky or not, uh, of uh, alternatives to solve the housing crisis in uh, the city of New York. And, you know, maybe as a template for the rest of the country, because I understand that uh, rent regulation is actually becoming popular uh, in different places in the country. And uh, this is something that everybody uh, should listen to and think about in terms of how are we going to do this in our community so that it works for everybody, so that it works for property owners, so that it works for tenants? And at the end of the day, affordable housing is provided in those communities, maybe on an alternative basis, instead of asking property owners to subsidize affordable housing. Now, I had a, I had a wacky idea. You tell, me, you tell me what you think. So I was thinking, uh, you know, in the city of New York, I understand that uh, they are the largest owner of real estate. In the five boroughs, and they own a lot of vacant land, and and I and I know that they were already talking about you know getting developers to build on some of the land that they have, or to you know remodel some of the buildings they have and make it affordable housing. But if we took it one step further, and uh, I know there's a lottery every time uh, that affordable housing comes up. And so you might have a building that's uh, 80-20. It's 80% market and 20% uh, affordable. Uh, obviously, thousands of people apply uh, to live in those apartments. You have to have a certain uh, area median income, uh, depending on your family size and the location of the site. Uh, but what if, what if that lottery first went to some of the people that are in rent-stabilized and rent-controlled apartments, and then those new developments – now absorbed those tenants out of these private property owners' buildings into new affordable housing, and now these owners could bring those apartments up to par with the marketplace in terms of the physical condition and receive a fair market rent. Is that a wacky idea? Well, it's not so wacky. It's interesting. But the thing is, is that in order to qualify for city affordable housing, you have to have a means test. 
you have to qualify based on financial ability and a good amount of our regulated tenants would not qualify. So the city is not going to take them. Oh, okay. I didn't think about that part. So what you're saying is that a good amount of the tenants that are living in rent-stabilized and rent-controlled apartments actually don't need to have them because they have the income to actually afford a market-rate apartment. And meanwhile, the building owner is subsidizing that person's apartment. Do you think that some of the market-rate apartments in those buildings are at higher rents because the landlord has to get the revenue from somewhere and that maybe... If you're living in a market rate apartment in a building that has rent stabilized or rent controlled apartments, that you are actually subsidizing your neighbor's low rent? Well, I, I think that's economies of scale. It has to. I mean, the money has to come from somewhere. I don't think landlords or building owners are intentionally raising the rents, but the books have to even out or building owners have to sell their buildings. The way the system is created inherently means that either somebody has to subsidize it. Either another tenant is subsidizing it or the building owner is subsidizing it. And that's getting back to my prior point. Either the government has to decide that this is worth the investment if we really want to address the affordability crisis and there has to be a way to subsidize housing in a way that puts people who really need it in housing that they need, or you're going to have a situation where other tenants are subsidizing those who need it. And and I don't mean through taxes, but through the rent. Or building owners are subsidizing it. And you can pick and choose. The advocates like to say that that building owners have the money and that they're greedy and that they're using all their resources for their own personal wealth. I would argue, and, and they certainly would argue as well, that that's the bottom line not happening in many cases with small building owners because the margins are so tight as it is. The other thing to point out is uh, the affordability issue. You know, our organization supports programs like uh, Assemblyman Hevesy has proposed, which is the it's a Housing Stability Affordability Act, I believe it's called. I, I messed the name up there. But the bottom line is instead of building uh, homeless shelters, spending billions of dollars on homeless shelters, it provides a subsidy for those who want a path to rental, to a rental market. It, it takes a subsidy and provides them with a voucher that they can use to rent apartments. That's a brilliant idea. Instead of going through the NIMBY issues of building, you know, everybody wants to to support homeless folks and, and build uh, new homeless shelters. This takes the money that would be uh, invested in those in 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 those buildings themselves and provides direct incentive for those folks to be able to use that as a voucher to pay for housing for permanent housing as opposed to a temporary shelter. As opposed to a temporary shelter, it's a brilliant solution. And in more thinking like that, taking money that's already going to be earmarked for programs and using it creatively to solve the affordability crisis is the kind of thinking we need in Albany and New York City. Listeners, if you have some ideas about alternative ways to help cure the housing crisis and create more affordable housing in the city of New York, feel free to send me an email. You just go to realtyspeak.nyc and send me an email, and I'll pass it on to Jay over a chip. At the end, we're going to give you his contact information and also uh, Kara's contact information, and I'm going to put it in the show notes. We've used a lot of acronyms here in the episode. In the show notes, I'm also going to put those acronyms and uh, what agencies those mean. Uh, before we finish up, Jay, you had two more things that you wanted to discuss that are on the table. You don't think that they're going to be voted on in June, but they could have an impact long term. What are those? I hope not. I'll put it that way. But they're they're definitely gaining momentum. And one of them is this all-encompassing idea of universal rent control. And it's being pushed as a solution by the tenant advocacy organizations and some of the more liberal state senators as a statewide solution to housing affordability. And basically, it's this, that the they would expand the rent stability program statewide. And while New York is able to function because of the just the the amount of housing stock that we have and there's fair market housing, applying the rent stabilization model to communities like Rochester, Albany, Long Island would just be decimating to those communities. And here's why. Because you don't have a plethora of units for folks to be able to look for. So in other words, if you're looking for a housing market and the demand for affordability in those areas is high, which it may or may not be. You have folks that are looking to get into that market. If you're forcing arbitrarily the rent costs down by stabilization, there is no incentive or 
pop purpose for buildings and apartments to for people to own those buildings and for the creation of new units in those markets. In New York City, there's a huge amount of available units. So if somebody can't get a stabilized unit, they go to a, a low market unit in a neighborhood. They have the ability to move to a low market neighborhood with a low market cost. In Albany or elsewhere, they won't have that. It'll actually enhance the affordability crisis in those communities. It'll reduce the number of units available. You'll have a problem where you'll have less investment in those units. You'll have less availability of affordability. The other proposal as part of this universal rent control package, which is even more startling, is a just cause eviction proposal, which would define what a building owner's ability is to evict based on a set of guidelines put out in the legislation, which on its face seems like a fair idea. The problem that you have there is that the means to prove eviction are arbitrary. They're draconian. They're not what we would consider fair. And also the means that the folks in New York City and some of the larger building owners would have legally to bring to the table to be able to prove the eviction would be significantly larger than those in Rockland County, Nassau County. You're talking about firms that may have one or two secretaries at best working in their offices. They don't have the, the means to be able to prove eviction. And so what you'll have is bad tenants in units that they can't be evicted from. You'll have other people in those buildings not happy because they're living with other tenants that are not good units. You're taking the legal right away from those building owners to be able to evict people who are bad in those buildings. Intentions are good. The bottom line is it would decimate the quality of the housing stock outside of New York City, and it would decimate the availability of housing stock outside of New York City. So there are two proposals that are gaining momentum in Albany. We don't think they'll pass in June, but they're not going away. And for those who are embracing them, be careful what you wish for, because they could really decimate not only affordability stock, but the housing market in general outside of New York City. You know, and I'd like to say as a investment sales real estate broker, I, I do notice that a lot of professional owner operators are beginning to deploy capital in other markets that do not have rent regulation laws and also do not have as many city agencies or municipalities that they have to deal with at the level that you do here in New York City. Owning real estate in New York City is not for the faint of heart. And I believe that the building owners that have dedicated some of them their lives and their ancestors' lives to providing good housing stock should not be at risk. So with that, folks, I just want to say, Jay and Kara, that was exceptional. That's all we have time for today. And I just want to make sure that the listeners, if they have any additional questions or want to reach out to either one of you, are able to contact you. Kara? You can contact me through our, our firm website at bbwg.com slash contact. And there's a form there that people can fill out. And so long as they say they want to talk with you, you'll be able to get back to them, correct? Yes, yes correct. Fantastic. And Jay? You can email me at info at chipnyc.org, chipnyc.org. And our website is chipnyc.org. We have an old, outdated website. We're in the process of updating our website. But if you go to there now, you'll find some information. We'll have a new website up and running in the next month or so. And Carrie, you're going to be updating your website as well, right? Yes, it's rolling out any day now. All right, great. Looking forward to that. What about responsiblerentreform.org? So that's a campaign and a website we've launched to tell the story of small building owners with a coalition of other uh, real estate in industry um, lobbying organizations to tell the story of small building owners and the constraints and regulatory constraints that we face coming up with the renewal, renewal of the rent laws in June. So building owners and advocates and anyone who is interested to hear the story of small building owners and the constraints that we face can go to that website, responsiblerentreform.org. They can get that information. It'll be updated as as we go out through the campaign up until June. They can click there to get involved in the campaign, or they can contact me at uh, info at chipnyc.org, and uh, we can help them connect to uh, being an advocate on behalf of small building owners. Before I forget, if anyone's a property owner in the city of New York and they'd like to investigate membership with CHIP, I can say that uh, as a member of CHIP, the valuable information that I receive on an ongoing basis is priceless. 
And uh, they also have seminars that you can go to. And if you remember, those seminars are free. And they also have several uh, large fun events um, that at a small additional cost you can also attend. And you can network with other people who are property owners like yourself in the city of New York. It's an invaluable uh, membership to have, and I highly, highly recommend that you consider that if you're not a member already. And if you want, just reach out to me if you want to come to one of the seminars, and uh, I'll arrange to have you come as uh, my guest, and, and then you can check it out and see if you want to join. So with that said, we're all set. Thank you so much both for joining me here on Realty Speak. Thank you, Bill, and I had a great time. Thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure being here. And there you have it. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. You can subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes, Google Play Music, or just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And please, share our show with others. Just choose Share on the Player and pick your preferred social media platform. And of course, you can always get to me via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.